And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 252 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. And it is a chonky week this week. Whew, yeah. We got all them non-DC books from last week, plus DC uh, Future State from this week, plus all the new books from this week. Yes. Uh, oh. the, only, the only book I am still missing is The Magnificent Miss Marvel, the final issue of Saladin Ahmed's run, My Comic Shop Was Shorted. So hopefully we will have that soon. Yeah. But there are 44 other books. <laughs> uh, or, hang on to your seats. We're going to move fast. <laughs> hold on to your butts. That's it. Future State, Batman Superman, number two. The beginning of that Future State timeline in 2025. This is written by Gene Lewin Yang, with breakdowns by Scott McDaniel, pencils and inks by Ben Oliver and Steven Segovia, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by Tom Napolitano. So, in, in the name of this not being a three-hour-long episode. Yes, correct. Uh, Brian and I have ahead of time kind of weighted the books we're going to spend a little more and a little less time on. Uh, and this is one of the ones we're going to be a little quicker on. Uh, because it is excellent. But I think if you read the first part, you kind of know what's up with two. Yes. I think if you listen to us talk about the first part, you kind of know what's up with two. And while I definitely recommend it and really dig it, I don't know that I've got a whole lot to add here beyond talking about the very end of it. Uh, nope. The only thing I will do is absolutely terrify Alex by saying, hmm, how about that Professor Pig with kryptonite tools? <sighs> I don't know if I have just been, if I have finally built up a tolerance to Professor Pig. Okay. Or if, if... I just have that much trust in Superman, but this is maybe a little less terrifying than Professor Pig normally is to me. I was into it. I appreciated it. Um, I think the rats with eyeballs on their back are way creepier. Oh, God, that was horrible. I was like, no. Let's, uh, let's give credit where it's due to the art team on this one. There are some great, like, creepy, crawly, uh, almost chthonic designs in this book okay so i do want to i do want so the pigeons with eyeballs in their chest uh -huh. totally get that one that one makes sense to me the rats with eyeballs on their backs that can kind of make sense i could certainly see you could you know get some angles that would work for you well and rats are good at the, climbing too so the the bats with eyeballs on their backs I'm curious as to exactly how effective that is. <sighs> okay, well, we're going to go over our budget and time on this one now. <laughs> Sorry. So, over on Minds at Yerk, we have finished 
Animorphs and moved on to this book series that was trying to kind of cash in on the popularity of Animorphs called Humanomorphs. Uh, the first episode of that will actually be out tomorrow or Wednesday, depending on editing time there. But uh, the second book opens with a line about a boat hovering over the water like a bat. So I actually did some research on this because my first response was, how well do bats hover? As it turns out, incredibly well, um, because of the size and shape of their wings, while it takes them more energy, they are also more efficient than hummingbirds at hovering, so it breaks even with hummingbirds. So you could actually have a bat, fruit bat specifically, uh, you could have a bat with an eyeball on its back that just kind of hung out, and it would be as effective as like a traffic camera or something like that. But wouldn't the angle be wrong with it on its back? Because it'd be, like, pointed up? I mean, if the eye kind of looks down, like, out of the corner of its eye. Maybe so. Maybe, maybe you want to okay. look in windows of skyscrapers. I don't know. It's super creepy. Anyway, okay. Well, yeah. Well, well, let's move on. Bats are good at hovering. This is really what I'm what I'm here for. Great. Great. Uh, great. I will also say I really do like the way that this answers why isn't Superman around. Yeah. Uh, during all the future state stuff, I think it I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think it it grounds it in that Batman Superman relationship really well. All right, last thing is um, way to go, bats! For um, Animal Man is in this, and he's like, "Yeah, I just let him ramble. You never know when one of those facts <laughs> might just be useful." <laughs> Too late. Kind of like you know, knowing that bats can hover. Too late. Did I remember that? Buddy Baker once told me that only 30% of an octopus's brain cells are in its head. <laughs> yep. There we go. Yep. All right. Future State Dark Detective number four. This is our last issue of this. Uh, it is set in 2027. Our first story up is Dark Detective, written by Mariko Tamaki, with art by Dan Mora, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Aditya Bidikar. What did you think of this one, Brian? Um, again, I love this kind of down and out Bruce Wayne, mm -hmm. where he's like, doesn't have access to things and has to scrape to get by and figure out how, how to do things. I, I, I mean, I kind of like this. Um, that being said, we kind of get, we get something of a resolution to that. Like, not that he is like, you know, has all his money and is the Bruce Wayne of old again, but like his current state that he was introduced in in this is definitely over. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the status quo changes for sure. And uh, remember what I said about the daughter of that landlord that's going to be trouble at some point in the uh -huh. future? Yeah, let's just say uh, she's got information that almost nobody else in the world has. That's true. Yeah. I want to talk about Red Hood. Yes. This was written by Joshua Williamson, with art by Giannis Milano Giannis, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Troy Pateri. Um, and this is, this is one of a couple of books this week that I think asks more questions than it answers. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense to me because Red Hood is one of the storylines we know we're actually sticking with in this timeline yeah. once we're back to, to normal quote-unquote next week uh all, all that and you get one of the one of the biggest dc mastermind criminals in all of comic yeah white rabbit that's yeah. true <laughs> hey i'm look i am all for giving white rabbit some context to exist that's not 
oh, hey, we're going to let, oh, was it Tony Daniels who drew that run? I think so. Uh, draw a very busty rabbit lady in a corset and thong. Yeah. Because we want to sell a new line. Um, yeah, she's wearing this big, furry, puffy jacket that, like, yeah, I'm like, great, I'll go for yeah, it. Yeah, like, I am, I am here, like, we want to turn her into some sort of underworld fence mobster yeah. character. I mean, cle- yeah, clearly she's, she's, she's kind of taking a black cat style, like, yeah. The, and I think here's the other thing about it that works for me, the, the, the mob stuff in Batman books usually works the least for me. Yes. But I think if you find the overlap in that Venn diagram between mob and supervillains, mm-hmm. or at least costumed villains, right. then you're going to hook me back in again. Like, I, I, I want the ridiculous. Batman punching dudes in suits while sometimes satisfying gets old. Right, I'm with you. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, let's, yeah. Um, this is dealing with uh, Jason having had the magistrate put a bounty on his own head. And machinations and double crosses between the magistrate and the white rabbit uh but it sets up a couple of things that will definitely pay off going forward one there is somebody in the shadows who we do not see literally giving jason his toys and um do you have any ideas of who that might be uh i i I do i have ideas just in that I think there are some some options who I would find cool. I'm 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 thinking it, mine is a way out there, but there's one specific line that makes me think who it is. Well, let's have yours, and I'll just have some of mine. Oh, that would be cool answers. Um, my guess is Andrew Bennett, who is I Vampire. That is okay. That is way out there, and I know the line you're talking about, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. When Red Hood is leaving. We hear him say, I bet you will. The sun is out. You better get to bed. And I would love to have, like, a, a, a Red Hood deals with occult stuff angle. I'd actually really love that. That's better than any of my answers. Okay. Um, I basically had an, okay, what if Bruce is alive but out of the game but still, like, helping out the old family members? Mm-hmm. Or one of the foxes like maybe maybe jace has loki teamed up with jason oh okay yours is better (laughs) Um, or alex the other the other is i'm kind of right in that it is indeed a vampire and there is somebody that we don't know has been vampirized in the time I mean, I just love that. A la Jubilee. I just love that as a power move. Yeah, we're going to spend uh, two months in the future and off-page have a vampire, but not tell you while we're actually in future state. I, like, that would be a, that'd be a real power move, wouldn't it? It's such a, like, weird Silver Age comic twist that... Yeah? I'm, I'm down for that. Absolutely. Okay, let's find out. I can't wait. Me neither. Future State Aquaman number two. Set in 2030, written by Brandon Thomas, with art by Danielle Sampere, colors by Adriana Lucas, and letters by Clayton Cowles. I want to say I was gonna say the first the first and most important thing to say about this book is it is absolutely 
gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think I have retweeted so many pages from this book in the last week that it's it's probably the whole preview at this point. It, uh, to me, a lot of it is the is the movement that's in it. Yeah, there's so much motion, and yeah. it's not just like the 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 human characters move right. because you're underwater. There's like a sense of current and flow and other creatures moving around. Yep. Uh, also, just kind of the way light reflects and refracts through the water. And like I said, the colors in this are stunning. Yeah. Uh, we we basically get Andy's side of the story. Mm-hmm. Kind of backing up, seeing how she survived to this point. Uh, and sort of her being chased by this this kind of sentient colony of of like quicksilver fish that can change and she she just un unintentionally like commands one to replace her leg. I was gonna say, so am I the only one who thinks that her leg is gonna be a side character in her future stories? You know, I don't know what to make of this, because that's kind of the one the one thread that this leaves open is she promises she will return this yep. fish, and I want to believe her, but we also never see it. Correct. Uh, and maybe the point is just, well, yes, of course she's going to. She has given her word, and she will. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. We never really got in Justice League an acknowledgement of this piece. Nope. So I don't know how that's going to pay off. I'm curious to see, though. And, you know, I can easily see it going two ways, right? One is, you know, she does go to return it, and then you know, the one that has become part of her leg is now kind of so much a part of her and enjoys her company and whatever so much that he doesn't want to leave and voluntarily chooses to stay. Yeah, the Stockholm Syndrome has kicked in. I Kind of, yeah. <laughs> or um, the other is, of course, that her intention is always to do this and things just keep coming up. Yeah. To the point that then this colony of Quicksilverfish becomes a big bad at some point in the future. Yeah. yeah. Um. I am so ready, though, to see more of Jackson and Andy in present yes. day and his training her and all of that. I love their dynamic together. Yeah, And the way that this book is framed around his lessons yep. to her and yep. how she recalls them surviving, I really like. Well, uh, and, and the other thing that I think we really get from this is there's clearly no doubt that essentially Mara and, and Arthur have adopted Jackson. Yeah. It, I mean, she calls him her brother in all of this, and yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love it. definitely read it along those lines. Yeah. I also want to mention, um, because I think for for us and probably for a lot of listeners, Brandon Thomas, uh, the writer on this book, is probably a little newer. You may be a little less familiar with his work. He has an image series called Excellence that has been running for a little while now. And there is a Kickstarter up to put out a hardcover and i wanted to shout it out because i've heard great things about this book i have not had a chance to check it out yet but will be um his collaborators uh on this book are kari randolph on art emilio lopez on colors and darren bennett on letters uh, and I actually think there are other books this week that Emilio Lopez and Darren Bennett have worked on that we'll mention as well. So I'm going to be backing it. I wanted to mention it because I think it may may have flown under at least our listeners' radar. We haven't talked about it before, but yeah, uh, 
I hear great things. Future State Suicide Squad number two. Gonna start with the Suicide Squad main story set in 2030. This is written by Robbie Thompson with art by Javier Fernandez, colors by Alex Sinclair, and letters by Wes Abbott. I love the way that Earth 3 Amanda Waller plays into this story. Yeah. Uh, I also love the way that Peacemaker, who is not a character I know at all. <sighs> okay. Um, I love the way that he very much is playing his own kind of Amanda Waller role. And acknowledges, yeah, she'll use her team the same way I would use mine, so uh, we're fucked. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. The main reason I want to talk about this, though, is I think I think both stories in this book are going to be major seeds for what happens in regular continuity when we return to it. For one, I mean, Robbie Thompson is still going to be writing Suicide Squad, but... There is a a conversation between Peacemaker and Connor late in this issue that basically acknowledges a a set of promises they have made to each other. And we don't really learn what that promise was. Nope. Knowing that Connor's recruitment is a, a part of the earlier arc of Suicide Squad in Infinite Frontier, there's really no question to me that this will will kind of come full circle, that this is sort of a closed loop of its own. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of closed loops in these. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this week, maybe more even than some other weeks, we've definitely mentioned a couple of books where we feel like, okay, this will definitely tie yeah, in I, in I a mean, specific I, way. I think very specifically, the biggest one was clearly Miracle Man, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Justice League Dark, though, was, I think, another big one. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, but now, uh, and Midnighter. Midnighter, yep. But now Suicide Squad and Black Adam both, I think. Narratively, if not in terms of, like, some of the time travel stuff that applies to to the other books. Narratively, they do form, I think, a really tight closed loop. Uh, speaking of Black Adam. Oh, boy. In the far, far future. Uh, written by Jeremy Adams, with pencils by Fernando Passerine, inks by Eau Claire Albert, colors by Jeremy Cox, and letters by Wes Abbott. Um, we had both assumed that Hippolyta and Black Adam would be on the Justice League roster because of their involvement in Endless Winter. And while I think that definitely will feed their storylines, something tells me that there's more to it, this, this, yep. this story. Than yeah. just that. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you what I'm most sad about the fact that we are leaving this futuristic conduct story? Um, is it? Yes. Yes. You can tell me. Go- gold beetle. Oh well, gold gold beetle's gonna be back. Gold beetle's yes. gonna be around in continuity. Well, to be fair, she is the uh, queen of the quantum realm, wave rider, warrior, tiara. Look, we don't we don't have time for all of all of that. Hey, you know how she feels when she can't do the whole list. <laughs> I love that line. So I much. mean, look, I am Gold Beetle, Wizard of the Realm of Ephesius, Master of Light exactly. and Shadow, Manipulator of yes. Magical Delights. There it is. I love it. Devourer love of it. Chaos, Champion of the Great uh. Halls of Tarakas. <laughs> the Elves, the Dwarves, oh, Northwest, etc. Yes, etc., etc. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that character. It is, she is 100% like an amalgamation of Booster and Blue Beetle. And like, also like, to the extent that she, she is <laughs> in a ship that looks like Ted Kord's Blue Beetle, Blue Beetle, but, but it's, it's in fact gold and has skeets built into it. Yeah. Uh-huh. She's flying around in skeets. Oh, I like everything about that character has to, has to, has to come back. That character is amazing. Brian, I want you to imagine the future where it is safe to have conventions again. <laughs> gold Beetle cosplayers. Oh my god. It's gonna be god, such a good yes. costume. No joke. Oh my word. Yeah. That's, yeah, absolutely. Black Adam and friends find where magic has gone and uh-huh. uh, try to stage their last stand against the unkindness. And all they can manage is to call a mulligan, let's say. Yeah. Also, I love just randomly Resurrection Man is in a book. Okay, did you did you notice? Uh, yeah, Resurrection Man, I, I did too. The first scene that we get when they were like the last bastion of magic, uh-huh. a couple of the characters that were in there, we clearly have a much much older like like late sixties seventies amethyst. Yeah, right. But my favorite has to be Etrigan the Demon in the detective chimp outfit with the hat and the cape. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Like, come on. I still just... One of the best ideas in comics of late is Etrigan the Demon in Detective Chimp. I just... I will never get over how good that is. Oh, so good. So good. Future State Superman versus Imperious Lex number two. This is set in 2050, written by Mark Russell, with art by Steve Pugh, colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr., and letters by Carlos M. Monagual. Uh, this is the one weirdo future state book that is not ending. Uh, we get number three in late March. Yep. Uh, this issue focuses on Lois Lane basically uh, getting the tour of and uh, evaluating. Lexor for candidacy for membership in the United Planets. Mm-hmm. I love Mark Russell's Lex Luthor. He's just yeah. so... It's a really clever, I think, balance between the kind of traditional Lex Luthor is actually smart and is actually clever and actually Correct. knows what he's doing with a very 20... 20s demagogue demagogue has drunk his own kool-aid and is less effective for it Mm -hmm. sort of 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 just he's full of bullshit He, he, he outsmarts himself yes um and i like that balance a lot i think it's it's one of those things that i think you can never explain it as well as it reads on the page but it works so well. And it's, it's, I mean, it's Mark Russell at his most Mark Russell, right? Like, it is. it's this Lex Luthor would be right at home in the Flintstones. Sure, sure. Um, do you know what else this book has, Alec? Brian's quote of the week. Quote, quote. So, um, Lois and Superman arrive at, uh, Luxor, Lexor, and, uh, 
basically Superman's like, I can't let you go down alone. It's Lex Luthor. Da, da, da. And she's like, did you forget there's a red sun here? Like, you know, in no time I would be needing to rescue you. And he's like, okay, well then uh, be careful. Yeah, you too. And if you get into trouble, call me. Even under a red sun, I've always got at least three good minutes in me. I can confirm that. <laughs> it's been a while since I've tried to call shot your quote of the week. Um, yep. But I said exactly <laughs> one screen cap this week. <laughs> there it is. And that's it. Called shot. Snarky. Lois, Lois has lost none of her snark. Yeah. I love it. Moving a little further into the future. In the year 3000. Superman House of L one-shot, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, with art by Scott Godolowski, colors by Gabe Eltabe, and letters by Troy Pateri. This is an anomaly in Future State, right? This is a one-shot. Yeah. And this is also, I think, in a lot of ways serving to be a capstone on all of the Superman books. Definitely. And I think it works for the most part as that. And I think it definitely works as setting stakes for what Johnson will be doing in Superman and action comics going forward. Like, this very much shows <clears throat> here is a potential endgame future for Superman and raises some questions on how did we get here about certain things. Mm -hmm. uh, not the least of which, and I don't, I don't want to tip the hand on the reveal in this, but it it seems very clear that Cersei will at some point play a role in Superman or action comics going forward. Morgan Le Fay, I mean Cersei. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's there's a very Arthurian legend uh, take on this. I mean, there is. This is very mythological. Yes. Oh like, yeah. Even. Even down to there are there are descendants of Superman who don't believe he that Kal El actually existed, that yep. he's just a story who's evolved over time. Yep. Um, but also we see the Red King again, or another Red King. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to say this was one of those subversions of because when they said, "Oh, they're being led by the King in Red, the Red King," I was like, "Oh, well, we know who that is." Yeah, he's got parademons and everything. It's like, uh, uh, oh, yeah, of course. Right, yeah, parademons literally with the Orion like symbol, yeah, like static thing going on them, yeah. Um, the thing that this makes me most excited about is, and I say this, it's also true of Worlds of War. It's true of the the Philip Kennedy Johnson Future State stuff specifically. The ways that it seems like he's promising Superman will be borrowing cosmic elements from other corners of the dc universe yes this war with the red lanterns and i think we've talked enough about how it seems like the green lantern status quo will be changing drastically yeah but this war with or at least the king and red maybe not the red lanterns we saw mongol with a yellow lantern emblem this idea of cersei being in play all of these parts and pieces are i think Things you would normally consider Justice League problems, if not their individual characters. But making them part of a long arc of Superman future history is really interesting to me. Well, and there's a couple other things. Like, one of the one of the kind of factions or one of the groups that's helping to fight and defend the House of L, right, are these, the warriors from Warworld. Also, like, the, the uh, monarchy of Tamaran. Right. Tamaran. Which <laughs> I got questions about that. <laughs> Theander? Yep. 
Uh-huh. But it makes sense if you think about Bendis' Superman run, because Tamaran is one of Superman's biggest allies in yep. the United Planets. Yep, absolutely. So, like, it's also barring unestablished pieces. Well, and what's... here's uh, This is the one thing that I'm having... I don't want to say trouble, but, I, I like, makes me realize that I don't know that all of these futures... Because, like, these are some of the furthest out, right? Right. That they can't be reconciled kind of with each other is this and Legion of Superheroes, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Kind of happens at about the same time. I can... And they don't seem like they're in the same universe. You know, I can... I can almost buy... I think you're right. I have an easier time reconciling that than I do some other things. Because this also takes place entirely on Earth's moon. Which, incidentally, makes this the far future of that colony on... In Super... In Superwoman. In Kara Zor-El, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, the... What do they call it? The Fortress of Sanctuary. Yes. Right, which didn't she call it sanctuary? She did, and they even yeah. acknowledge like, yeah, her. There, there's like a passing reference that is thematically tied to her books. I know exactly what it is. It's when uh, Theander's talking about did Kal El really exist or was he just stories? One of the stories that her dad used to tell her was of Kara and the space dragon. That's right. Yeah, um, I was like, okay, that's that's very cool. Yeah. So I because this is such a specific like tight location i could believe that okay all the other stuff is going on too and you know as there is economic collapse because of what element lad may have done there's also war across the galaxy and these are just two halves they could be different i could buy it either way yeah, yeah i think things that are a little harder to reconcile there was something last week uh, an issue where, and this could just also be like a goof editing or with continuity or something. There's a scene where you see like a full spread of the Legion and Supergirl is there. Oh, right, yeah. And okay, yes, time travel. It could be like the past of the Kara Zor-El who we saw in Superwoman. But it could also be just another timeline where she's still alive and still in the future. Like, I do think there are enough question marks that these could be separate timelines and there could be multiple timelines here. And I know this is something we've gone around on, right? For yep. two months now. Yep. At the end of the day, the realistic answer is some of these things that are teased will happen in continuity and some won't happen in continuity. And at the end of the day, what ends up being the things that are real will be the things that stick in the storytelling. And I know that's a meta answer, but that's how stuff like this always works. It's got to live and breathe. Then there was one character who showed up that I was 100% not expecting. Yeah? Let's just say she's very, very fast. Right? Yeah. One of a character that you and I talked about how much we like this take on this character Mm -hmm. now. And I was not expecting her to show back up, but... But there she is. Yeah. It's all connected, Brian. It's all connected. I really enjoyed this, though. This was a... A, a good capstone. It was different enough, but, like, brought a lot of pieces together. Like, I think it did exactly what it needed to do. Yeah. Yep. We have mentioned Legion of Superheroes number two already. Uh, it is written by Brian Michael Bendis, with art by Riley Rosmo, colors by Ivan Placencia, and letters by Dave Sharp. This is, this is, this is picking up the pieces that we saw in number one, and, and solving the problem it raised, moving past it. 
I, well, issue, we talked when issue one came out that, like, there was a whole lot of pieces just kind of thrown on the board. Yeah. And, like, like you really didn't know what was going on or how, like, what, huh? Well, and I want to I wanna say something about that because I, if you haven't been reading Legion of Superheroes or Superman or Action Comics, you may not be aware right. of the fact that Bendis has been doing Marvel-style recap pages in his books. Yes. Uh, which is a bit of an anomaly for contemporary DC. I normally will like the Superman ones, look at the things on Clark's desk, just because I love the way those are set up. Yes. The Legion ones tend to be a talking head telling their character backstory and then catching you up on plot. And it's, I don't know, 20 text balloons on a page. Right. They're fine. They're effective for what they do. But if I'm being honest, I normally skip those. Just like I normally skip recap pages in Marvel books. Mm -hmm. I read this one, and I am so glad I did, because this actually explains what happened in its recap. It does. And I had, I think, a way better grasp of what was happening in this issue as I read it Yeah. than I would have if I had not read that. I think I'd have been very lost. Yeah, but essentially the, the, that one kind of throws all the pieces on the board, asks a whole lot of questions, and that like that's it. It just stops right there. Yeah. This one then takes all of those pieces and puts them into a picture and answers the questions and, like, gives you everything you need. Like, yeah. okay, if you read both of these together, it's probably much, much better. Yes. Um, I really like the way Saturn Girl takes focus in this. Yes. Uh, Bendis has played coy about when Legion of Superheroes comes back, whether it will be before or after this in its, in its timeline. Mm-hmm. And I'd actually really be okay with either. If you had asked me after number one, I would have said, mm, I'd like to go back to where we were. But I actually think there are some really interesting things that could come of this, and I don't think it's mutually exclusive with still pursuing the open threads from the Legion of Superheroes run so far. Well, because there, there really is two different directions, right? You can either obviously continue and explore all of the interesting things of what this kind of, you know, the landscape this leaves you in. Mm -hmm. Or you can do the kind of the Teen Titans approach, which is, oh my God, look at what happened. How the hell did we get here? Yeah. Yeah. And either one of those works for me. Yep. I'm... You know what doesn't work for me? What's that? That super cheesy mustache on John. Well, you know... <laughs> he's he's still trying to find himself and his place in the the Superman legacy. Oh, and maybe maybe that, that means it, John. Look, his father was afforded the opportunity to indulge tragic hairstyles. <laughs> this, you are not wrong. You are not wrong. He deserves every opportunity to do the same. And frankly. A bad mustache? Way better than a mullet. I say rocking a quarantine mullet. <laughs> I was uh, I, I was just expecting him to break out into bad Batrock the, the Leaper uh, <laughs> French. <laughs> Fetcher la vache, fetcher les can can dancers. There you go. I'm at Monty Python, but I feel like Monty Python uh, yeah. and Batrock the Leaper are the same thing. Pretty much. There's pretty much. another timeline, in fact, in which John Cleese played <laughs> Batrock the Leaper on something. Oh, let's move along, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's move along. Well, uh, I want to mention one more DC book this week. 
uh this is tangentially related to future state we got the first digital chapter of the next batman second son this was written by john ridley with pencils by tony akins breakdowns by ryan benjamin inks by mark morales colors by rex locus and letters by darren bennett this is set much closer to or in current day timeline uh and the only reason i think for that ambiguity is we haven't seen i think tim's return he's still going by tim in in this issue uh i don't recall have we seen tim's return in batman yet i don't think so uh this is set immediately prior to it so it's either the very near past future or we'll see him very soon in batman um he is right now in i believe vietnam working as a contract killer uh trying to take down a local not local an american businessman who has moved to vietnam and become sort of a local philanthropist but is using that to cover human trafficking or at least alleged human trafficking he he uh, there's a point where he is confronted by tim and he tells tim oh, oh no look you don't even know what you're about to die for i pity you so like maybe tim's intel is bad maybe tim's in over his head uh but we get we get i think a really good look at one where he is before he comes back to gotham and how he already has some of the skills to take on a more batman-esque role and how he might move from where he is here to where we see him in actually Batman black and white. I'm going to I'm going to mention The Cavalry, which is the first story in Batman black and white number 3. This is written by John Ridley with art by Olivier Coipel and letters by Darren Bennett. This is set in the future state timeline. Uh and is the first time we see Jace really leaning into the no guns rule uh which i mentioned because clearly there is there is something that will push him from working as a contract killer to or at least a mercenary to playing by the same rules as batman so we definitely see him at two different ends of of the spectrum in this i also want to mention the cavalry because it introduces his sidekick I'm not going to say anything else about who it is, but I oh, love man. I love the dynamic and the relationship between them. I was not expecting them to show up at all. Uh for him even to have a sidekick. <gasps> but it's very very good. Hmm. Actually, I have a thought, but I'm not going to say it. But yeah, definitely definitely check this one out. It will be getting physical releases starting in April. So if you'd rather pick yeah. up a physical copy, uh we may double back then. I don't know. Um I'm going to keep reading it digitally. Brian. Mhm. Tell me about from Aftershock Nuclear Family number 1. So this is a uh this is a brand new book by Stephanie Phillips. You guys know that I love Stephanie. Uh Tony Chastain is doing the art. J.D. Mettler is colors, and Troy Pateri is doing the letters for this. Um, this is, as you 100% can expect, you know, it's, a, it's an issue one, so it's a setup. Um, and this is really just, the whole thing is just an introduction to essentially the one or two people who are going to be our main characters in this. Um he is a used car salesman, and we spend the first five or six pages 
with him and who is obviously a friend of his, you know, a coworker, uh, learning and meeting them. Um, and then he goes home and we meet the other members of his family. He has a, you know, teenage daughter who is, you know, a very, very typical teenage. But yeah, this is a, this is set in the fifties so that, you know, or maybe, maybe early sixties, but I'm guessing late fifties. Um, and you know, he has a wall of like amateur ham radios in his basement <laughs> and you know, the whole thing. And at the end of this, essentially the bombs start going off mm. and he runs down to the basement with his family and, um, we see a bomb headed directly for their house and then it cuts and he goes up and walks out of the house into a empty landscape where their house is fine, their house, their yard. It is literally a smoking rubble wasteland everywhere else. Huh. And soldiers come up in gas masks and call him a commie and yeah, uh, that's where we cut. So a whole lot of oh shit what the hell's going on <laughs> now <laughs> right uh and then we get then we get a very um like this was like one of the most fallout style little things called a true american's guide to communism right? <laughs> which is do you know what communism looks like how about what communism sounds like or smells like <laughs> like a very horrible horrible right over the top propaganda yeah so when I was in high school, which was 2001 through 2005, uh -huh. uh, one day I was in the library and stumbled across this tiny book. I mean, it was, I don't know, four by six, maybe old, like worn blue canvas cover. Uh -huh. And like, you could just barely make out the, the embossing where there had, I'm sure, been like silver or something embossed letters on the side. You could just make out the impression of the embossing. This book that was still in this library entitled Communism and Your Child. <laughs> I'm sure that's on the bookshelf of... of, of a whole lot of people at this point i'm yeah. sure <laughs> i story. i regret never checking it out to just like see how ridiculous it was yeah but uh no, it, it, very true to stephanie felt real very very good story setup i i can't wait for more of this awesome it's gonna be good yeah i want to talk briefly about the department of truth number six uh this is written by james tynan the fourth with art by elsa charretier Colors by Matt Hollingsworth and letters by Aditya Bidikar. This is the first of, I believe, two interlude issues. Uh, basically, between each arc, the plan is to have issues that jump to different points in time, showing different moments in history where either people have investigated the 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 phenomenon that drive this the phenomenon that drives this book. That the more people believe something is true, the more true it becomes. Literally. Uh, this jumps to the turn of the millennium into the thousands and is about a priest who breaks down on the road, his cart breaks down on the road and he wanders into the home of this alleged witch who it turns out may be the descendant of the last Roman emperor and 
who holds that the the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic Church have conspired to add 300 years to the calendar to make themselves seem more established. So it's getting into this historical conspiracy, and it is framed by Lee Oswald being brought into the Department of Truth's library for the first time and doing his first research in his training, and that's him reading this story, and discovering maybe the origins of, uh, uh, let's say, a famous conspiracy theory organization. <laughs> is this first trade out yet? Uh, I think it's either just come out or is about to come out. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to read this in trade. I, I strongly recommend this book. Um, yeah. I don't know how James Tynan stays sane researching conspiracy theories in 2021, <laughs> but it's a phenomenal book. The art is gorgeous. Uh, Elsa Charretier is a guest artist on this issue. These interludes will all have guest artists. And if you know me, you know that I love Elsa Charretier's art. Uh, so this is an amazing issue and an amazing series, and I think really uses this premise of filling in history very, very effectively. And now for something completely different. Stray Dogs, number one. This is different. Um, wow. Uh, so... <laughs> Explain this one, Brian. Just try. Okay, so uh, well, let's start with the creative team. So it's written by Tony Fleeks. Art is by Trish Forstner, colors by Brad Simpson, letters are Tone Rodriguez. Um, Actually, sorry, Brian's reading from my notes, and my notes are weird on this one. Okay. Uh, the layouts are by Tony Rodriguez. Ah, okay. The flats are by Lauren Perry, and the design is by Lauren Herda. There isn't a specific letterer credited, credited in this issue. So I'm not sure if Lauren Herda, who designed it, lettered it. Right. Or if someone else on the creative team may have. Um, part of me says I think Tony Fleeks has some lettering background. And it's not unheard of for writers to letter creator-owned books. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. Even in the back matter, there was no reference to who actually lettered it. So Okay. I tricked you there. I didn't mean to. No worries. No worries. Uh, so uh, let's start by saying what a pretty book. It's gorgeous. It, it is. The colors are just like uh, kind of this soft, almost cartoony. Mm-hmm. I mean, color, it's, it's very, it's very, I want to make sure I. 101 Dalmatians-ish. I was going to say, I want to make sure I get the right one and I'm not naming a, ca a character in Arrested Development. Don Bluth is the animator, right? Yeah, uh, yes. Okay. I believe that is correct. <laughs> it's very, I believe that is correct. It's very Don Bluth, right? It's very yes. Fievel yep. Goes West, very yep. Rockadoodle. Yeah. Um, let me name that cultural touchstone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, we get introduced to uh, this this little dog, Sophie, who is brought into the vet, and... We get. I, I love how we get the um, the exposition and explanation without it feeling like exposition or explanation. Yeah, because it it sounds like the vet is just telling the owner, right? Because the owner's like, "Oh, I hate to have to bring her in for a shot. I hope she doesn't hate me." Blah blah blah. And the vet's like, "No, dog memory doesn't work like that." Yeah, it's right? 
it reads in the moment as the vet's just trying to console the owner so she doesn't worry exactly. about this. Exactly. And, like, it's yeah. just this throwaway line, and it becomes very important. It does, which is essentially, you know, dogs remember where they sleep, they remember who their owner is, um, uh, that kind of thing. But they don't remember things that, like, their short-term memory doesn't hold on to things. Their their memory is not episodic. Right, correct. Um, And that becomes very important because she wakes up in this house with, like, 12 other dogs, 10 other dogs, I don't know, a lot of other dogs. 101. <laughs> nope, not quite, but, um, and we, has this, apparently, like, this new owner, and there's very definitely a kind of lead lead dog here, uh, one might say an alpha, uh, named no, Rusty. No, no, no one should say it's an alpha. Uh, uh, <laughs> only, in res- only in respect to how dogs actually function, eh. not in respect to. Okay, but dogs in captivity. Well, dogs in captivity, which these are. These are domesticated. They are in captivity. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, but the point being, there, there's a kind of a leader of this. A leader of the pack. A leader of the pack. There you go. Uh, and he, in, you know, tries to comfort her and introduces her to everyone that's there and all that stuff. Kind of gives her a little tour, right? Um, and... Then um, the the new person comes in and basically puts like a little red outfit on her so she's not cold, and that triggers a memory in her. Yeah, it's this scarf that her old owner wore. Correct. When this guy broke in and killed her and stole her dog. Yes, yeah. And so she tries to start telling them that, yeah, there's something wrong with this guy. He's a killer. And maybe that's how we all got here. And, you know, the Rusty, the the pack leader guy, comes back and says, uh, you know what, I, I don't know if I believe you or not, but I don't know any reason why you would lie. So let's see if we can find out the truth. And if we do, then, uh, you know, if he is a killer, then I'm going to help us all get out of here. She's like, wait, what are you talking about? Yep. Like she's already forgotten. And that's the end of this chapter. That's the end of this book. Yeah, this like, is, in the uh, best possible way, just... A bizarre book. Like, it's so... It's so just uncanny. The 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 psychological horror in this. Here yeah. are some cute puppies. And Well, and we get a couple of other references to, like, the memory, right? Like, one of the dogs right. talking about, oh, what's that, what about that stick you found yesterday? What stick are you talking about, right? Yeah. Um, And I think... I don't think we're done playing with that yet. What if Memento, but cute puppies? Ugh. Boy, yeah. So I do want more, but yeah, I don't <laughs> think this is going to go in all nice places. No, it's it's going to be dark. Uh, but now for a happy book, Black okay, Widow number good. five. Oh shit! Oh man, I I actually I actually cried, teared up a little bit in this one. Yeah, like, me too. Damn, this is Kelly. Why you tear our hearts like this? Written by the inimitable Kelly Thompson. With art by Elena Casagrande, with Rafael De La Torre, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Corey Pettit. Uh, there was a little bit of a delay on this issue. Um, I think I think basically they wanted to work ahead on the following issues, so there would not be a delay after this issue, which was probably the right call. Uh, if you don't recall where the series had left off, 
um, Natasha had learned the truth about her reality and the, the cabal of her enemies who was trying to keep her off the board had come for her and her family. And this deals with the fallout of that. Uh, let me just say, I think Kelly Thompson probably has one of the best understandings of, uh, uh, Bucky and Clint and certainly their relationship with Natasha Mm -hmm. and where they fit in her life. Like, wow, that was, that was, that's some good stuff. That was excellent. I also think this is another book where Kelly Thompson's talent for writing about and writing characters moving past trauma really shines. Uh, We've seen her before in Captain Marvel, in Rogan Gambit or Mr. and Mrs. X, write about longstanding character trauma. This does something a little different where, you know, Black Widow is, I think, one of those characters, which we see in a lot of female characters in comics, who has had just a lot of narrative trauma pushed on her to give either guys something to do or just because it was for a very long time acceptable just to torture women in comics. And this is, I think, the first time we've seen Kelly Thompson sort of write a new piece of trauma in to be sort of a last straw to move a character who's just so used to it into a new phase of her story. Yeah. And like we we talked a little bit ahead of time. I definitely think this piece of, of what started in this run is going to be part of Natasha forevermore now. There's there's just not an effective way to move backwards from it, I right. think. Right, yeah. Um, and I love that. I do too. The, o- the other thing that I absolutely love about this is there's no, there's absolutely, I can see a thousand other writers trying to write this, mm-hmm. right? And it's the whole Natasha, I've got to do this on my own thing. Yeah. There's like none of that here. Yeah. She just... She just accepts the help that Clint and Bucky and Elena. I'm not going to say Elena and somebody else who I'm not going to mention because it's part of the story. uh, Give her, and she's just like, yeah, I. I, Anybody that's willing to help, I'm gonna. My, yeah, I'm gonna take it. Well, and I think it's important to note here too, talking about accepting help and talking about trauma. What is traumatic in this is essentially Natasha has to make a choice. Mm-hmm. That involves sacrificing her own happiness for the least bad of all bad outcomes. Correct. And she has to move past that. There's a great scene with, I know you, you've alluded to the relationship with, with Bucky. Yep. But there's a great scene between her and Bucky about... It is fantastic. ...how she is processing this and how she can move, the only way she can move forward from this. And... And how it's going to affect their relationship to each other. Yes. So essentially what happens is Bucky Bucky makes sure that her family is safe. And part of that is she can never, ever know where they are or what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and she knows that that will – they both acknowledge that that will always be between them now. Yeah. And damn. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no – resentment necessarily nope. toward him for it but it's something nope. that even though she has asked him and has had has had autonomy in this happening right that's right. the important part it still changes them 
and and it's still it's it's not like she's making a positive choice as you, as you said earlier she's making the least bad choice yeah so she has autonomy in what that choice is but not what those options given to her are right which is different right yeah, yeah. Uh, can I say though that I absolutely that I think this is something another writer would not have done either, is that she gives her one piece of this to hold on to. Yes, yes, I think that moment is so important, and like as a reader, is yeah. really important payoff. Like this is, I think, the, one of the things that Kelly Thompson is very smart about the sort of dramaturgy of the way she builds stories, she recognizes, okay, all of this does what the story needs to do for Natasha to move forward. But now I need a moment where the audience can breathe for a moment. And that's what, what this piece, I think, does technically, right? It gives the audience a moment to say, okay, aw, kitty cat, okay, at least she can take something with her. Yeah, Kelly Thompson's just one of the best. Uh, also, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous book. Yeah, you're rereading it again and getting getting sad again. I can see it on your face. I was looking for, and and I love. There's when I talked about you know how she knows I think these characters really well. There's a there's a thing that Clint is put out by the fact that all the characters that were in her life had you know there was james there was steve even the cat was named logan right mm -hmm. and he, he wasn't in there anywhere yeah and she's like y you realize the people that took me named them not me oh like that's <laughs> such a clint thing yeah it's perfect yeah. but but then now she understands that that would be upsetting to him yeah right yeah anyway i i Again, I just love her understanding of these characters. Also in classic Clint fashion, it's just the dumb, out-of-touch guy thing to say, like, yeah, you've just gone through this traumatic <laughs> thing, but yep. let me tell you how I'm upset by it. Yeah, yeah. It, that's super Clint, isn't it? King in Black. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push through these quickly, but there are things I want to mention in each of them. Okay. Uh, first up is King in Black number four. This is written by Donny Cates. Pencils are by Ryan Stegman. Inks by J.P. Meyer. Colors by Frank Martin and Letters by Clayton Cowles. Um, if you have been waiting for the reveal of who the God of Light is, uh, or what it is, this is the issue where you get your first taste. And let's just say that there is a tie to some uh, powers that are cosmic. Oh boy. But not in the way you're probably thinking. King in Black, Planet of the Symbiotes number two. Uh, both of the stories in this are lettered by Corey Pettit and colored by Rochelle Rosenberg. The first one up is an American kaiju story written by Mark Bernadin with art by Kyle Hotz. Are you familiar with American kaiju, Brian? Uh, I don't think I am. This is a character from, I think, U.S. Avengers and maybe one other book. There was a little bit in the back matter about about where he came from. This is an American soldier who's gone through a super soldier program, and when he's activated, he turns into a giant reptile monster, who's, as a monster, all of his speech is, U-S-A, and each of those growls are respectively lettered in red, white, and blue. Um, and this is about his, his sort of 
being weaponized to fight back against the king in black but weighing all the collateral damage and who's the real monster here is it the government for deploying him is it him for wanting this power in the first place is it all the king in black's fault it's sort of like the ethics of military response to tragedy uh the other story here is written by jeffrey thorne with art by jan basaldua it is a hobie brown story uh when when king in black kicks off hobie brown is in the middle of dinner promising his girlfriend he will never suit up again because she's worried about his safety he doesn't put on the prowler costume again i'll say that uh i also love just the general this is spider-man's fault somehow i've got to get across town to my lab and then to spider-man go wait in the go hide in the basement do these things you'll be safe like it's just a fun hobie brown story uh king and black return of the valkyries number three uh this is written by jason aaron and torin grunbeck with art by nina vacueva colors by tamra bonvillain and letters by joe sabino uh we basically have three groups of valkyries at this point each sort of on individual missions and this shows how all of those fit together uh overall their goal is to separate the power that null's sword the necro sword draws from this uh celestial floating in the space between life and death that is the body that belongs to the head that is nowhere um and all of them grappling with like dying or having been dead or having lost their powers there are a lot of moving parts here and it's all balanced really really well the last one is miles morales spider-man number 23 uh written by saladin ahmed with art by carmen carnero colors by david Coriel, and letters by cory pettit i adore this issue i think it is one of those issues that if you don't take your time you could just like speed through and you'd really be missing out uh this starts off with miles as king and black is going down seeing another symbiote dragon and if you if you read venom the very first arc was Miles and Venom teaming up to fight one of these dragons. Miles' Venom blasts will separate symbiotes from their hosts. So the first thing he does is, like, free this dragon. And then hop on its back for a ride across town because Miss Marvel is calling for help. And then he has to deal with, with like, weighing how hard he can blast Miss Marvel to separate her from null without hurting her but wanting to free her and her wanting to be freed it's it's so carefully paced and structured that it does a whole lot with actually i think a really deceptively simple looking script modok head games number three Written by Jordan Bloom and Patton Oswalt, art is by Scott Hepburn, colors are by Carlos Lopez, and letters are by Travis Lanham. Our girl's back. Oh my god, you know, anytime Gwenpool shows up, I'm gonna be happy. And she... I love how free writers feel to use her in literally however the hell they want. Yeah, I, I... My favorite moment of just Gwynpool using her powers here, right? Uh-huh. Is her holding up editorial notes as like cue card signs or whatever to try to prove her point to the mutant character she is arguing with. Yeah, pretty much. Uh there's also part of the book where she tells you to cut out some pages. Yeah. And you know, you should buy five to twelve copies because you know you don't want a copy that's 
yeah screwed up but you need to do this yeah um yeah I, I literally love there's like you know she does her crawl out of the pages thing right mm-hmm. and literally talks about how uh uh you know how other writers have actually taken a character that was supposed to be a throwaway and actually given her a story and made her something more mm-hmm. so why can't that happen to Modoc? Like yeah. she realized, oh shit, this is Modoc's book, not mine. <laughs> I love that moment. It's like, oh fuck, I need to be helping him, otherwise I'm the villain again. Which is like, <laughs> yes, that is her nightmare, right? She doesn't want yeah. to be the villain. Correct, correct. So yeah, so she comes out and like marks up the comic, and yeah, <laughs> helps him <laughs> helps him find the house he's been remembering. Can, can I can I say the the art? The art desk that she goes to 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 make the changes, though. Uh huh. The the three post-it notes that are there, which is sleep is for the week, draw more better, <laughs> and editors are people too, <laughs> which are you know from the editor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a little bit. Um, so good. So Modoc, good. Modoc bestows upon Gwynpool an honor he has never given anybody. Okay. It's just a moment I love. Yeah, I know. It, yeah, uh, it just like like I I think I think every time. Oh, we we absolutely though super 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 quick should mention the um what do they call them zoodocs? Yes, all Which these are... animals that have wandered into a Modoc lab and been converted. Yeah, the toucan. Modoc is truly, truly horrifying. No more horrifying than the one that's three ants fused together. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're not wrong there. Anyway, Modoc finds some family in this, too, just not the family he expected. Oh, boy, yeah. Krakoa time! All right, let's do it. Cable, number eight, written by Jerry Duggan, with art and colors by Phil Noto, letters by Joe Sabino, and design by Tom Muller. Uh, I was reading this, and I was like, you know, if Cable's gonna fight Strife, they just need to introduce younger Strife. And then they do that a dozen times over. (laughs) It's like they took your idea and, like, just multiplied it by 12, right? Yeah. Um, there's a moment where Strife runs behind a door, and it seals with a biometric lock. And Cable's like, fuck, wait a minute. And then just peers into it. (laughs) It's like, same DNA, I'm a clone, they're clones. Okay, I I got this. (laughs) I know who you are, clone. Well, after you just opened that lock, I'd actually be really disappointed if you didn't. And that, and, like, he keeps calling for Domino to help, and she's just eating. And she yeah. walks in, she sees everything, she's like, oh, hang on, I'm clocking in. <laughs> Drops the food. <laughs> Domino is, is probably one of my favorite parts of this. Domino's amazing. Domino just yeah. wants her gyoza. And no kidding, right? Yeah. And then I do, I do love at the end, he's uh, basically, uh, she's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> because the... The enemy that they're fighting gets killed by a micrometeorite that literally lands. He's like, wait, did he just get killed by a meteorite? Yeah, what are the odds? Been a pleasure, but lose my number for a few years, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have Marauders number 18, also written by Jerry Duggan. With art by Stefano Caselli and Matteo Lolli, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by Corey Pettit, and design by Tom Muller. Uh, I want to say real quick, this Issue ends with a to be concluded tag. 
It definitely isn't. There's an issue 20, so 19's not the end. It must be this arc. That's what I'm, th- I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking it must be this uh, 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 Madripoor arc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is basically the Marauders' efforts to buy out and endear themselves to Lowtown. Mm-hmm. It starts with their opening the Moira McTaggart Hospital. And they invite Charles and Magneto, and I really cannot tell if the two of them are pissed off or pleased or both by I this. I think I think absolutely both, one hundred percent both. Um, now, can I also say that Callista is the very is like the absolute best for realizing who she can bring in? Yes, to this hospital. So she brings Mask, right? Who? Literally, this character has never been used as anything but kind of nightmare fuel. Yeah. Right? And she brings him in, and, like, the people are like, what are you doing here? And he's like... Even he's like, like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here, right? And she's like, well, yeah, this is the renowned plastic surgeon, Dr. Mask. Um, Doctor, do you want to take a look at this baby? And there's this clay baby with a very clear cleft palette or you know some sort of deformity in her in her lips and face and he uses her powers to 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 make her not have this this obvious you know uh uh what we would consider a flaw you know for normalcy right uh and like the mother is ecstatic like yeah he can use his powers for good yeah like restorative surgery right after wrecks or whatever like i was like how brilliant <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Verindi hates this. Of course. Um, so while some of the other marauders buy a bar, Verindi conspires to basically ruin their reputation. We learn that there is a new batch of Reavers, Reavers mm-hmm. comprised of soldiers, mercenaries, whatever, who because of the kill-no-human rule have been left alive but mutilated and have volunteered to become Reavers for the Verindi to exact their revenge. Um, So, like, you get some, I think, really important consequence in this issue. Yes. Actually, a lot of of the five issues we talk about today, right, are doing work to introduce, I think, some new ideas or new versions of ideas Mm -hmm. that feel like they'll be playing out across the line for a while. Like, like you can see slowly, and you, I like how they're not trying to. Very easily, you could have seen this right where they would take like one, one period of story arcs, like one six month period of story, mm-hmm. right, in all the books, and set everything up to get to a point where the world is kind of against Krakoa, yeah. right. But instead, what they're doing is literally, how long has this been going on now? A year and a half? Uh-huh. Right? And, like, you can see the pieces falling in, like, one at a time very slowly over time. Well, and I think right now we're in a phase where we're going to see a lot of those pieces shifting. Yeah. Leading up to a specific moment. Do you know yep. what that moment is? Uh, I do not. The Hellfire Gala. Oh, you know what? That's super obvious now. Yeah. I think course. a lot of these pieces. Also, they name drop the Hellfire Gala a lot in well, these Yeah, issues. that's true. Yeah, that's true. They do. But I think a lot of these pieces are very specifically challenging mutants in a way where they can't just exist on the world stage as a a 
an economic entity, right? They right. they're not just transporting and negotiating trade deals in exchange for for autonomy. Right. They're going to have to become a global superpower. Yep. To deal openly with some of these issues. Well, and we see we see it happening in a different side of that in Wolverine as well, yep. which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um moving on to New Mutants. Mm-hmm. This is written by Vita Ayala. Art and colors are by Rod Reese. Letters are by Travis Lanham. And design is, again, by Tom Muller. I think maybe the ways that this feeds into what we're talking about are a little more subtle. Yes. But we have our first example of a sort of mutant power circuit for more nefarious purposes in this issue. Um, We follow the same, I think, two big subplots as the last issue. One is, of course, the, the Shadow King manipulating children kind of on the fringes of Krakoa. Mm-hmm. I do like how Gabby's having none of it, though. Yeah, Gabby, like, Gabby definitely feels out of place and, and finds herself with the rest of this group of sort of outsider mutants because of that. Yeah, But immediately recognizes what he does, which is to power, to, to, to combine his powers with no girls and body swap a bunch of mutants. Right, And it nearly kills most of them. And she calls him out on this. His response is, well, look, you've already healed up. What are you worried about? She's like, no, this is wrong. Not having it. But that idea of, of something so invasive, mm-hmm. so far we've only seen these, these power circuits for ostensibly good purposes, right? Or at least for the good of Krakoa. Right. This is, I mean, this is chaotic, chaotic evil, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's so weird. Like, when he did this, though, there were certain characters and certain people I thought that if this was done with consent and in the right way, mm-hmm. this could be really, really cathartic and helpful. I mean, we see two examples here, No Girl and Cosmar, yeah. both. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing, right? Like, we've seen we've seen the whole body swap... Uh, like mass body swap as social upheaval plot in Wonder Twins. Sure. And like, there's definitely, there's definitely the argument that there is good that can come of it. But it's also, if you've got notoriously evil rogue Shadow King out on the fringes, and I'm still not wholly sure how aware Krakoa is that he's like there hanging out in caves. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know either. Like, he's definitely operating on the margins here. Yeah. Like, the idea of that much power unchecked feels like the sort of, of to kind of come back around to that, that point about moving pieces. If there's going to be one thing that feels like here is a, a global catastrophe caused by Krakoa, yeah. well, that is a big potential candidate right there. Yeah, agreed. Um, and it may play very differently from that, but it's still like just a terrifying thing to have on the board now. Then we move on to Wolverine number 10. Written by Benjamin Percy, art is by Adam Kubert, colors are by Frank Martin, letters are by Corey Pettit, and design is by, you guessed it, Tom Muller. We see explicitly here Wolverine and uh, 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 Maverick, Maverick. Yep. versus shadowy elements of the U.S. government and the head of the X-Desk. Yes. Um, who, who to this point, 
has kind of been a friendly, right? Yeah, like we saw we saw her meet with Storm on the subway, yep. right? Yep, yeah. Um, but you know, and this is what I was talking about, kind of the other side of that, right? Which is if they're gonna play, they're gonna play in the big game of world politics, right? One of that is kind of the the underbelly, you know, and so like there's a there's a letter that you can read that's part of the you know one of the one of the data Jonathan pages. Hickman style data pages, right? That is, um, you know, essentially her saying, yeah, they know it was us, but they're not going to raise a stink about it either. Yeah, like because it's just as much not to their advantage to call this out as it would be as it is to ours, right? Well, and this is the other big reason why I think we're going to see Krakoa has to evolve to yep. active superpower, because if their only recourse is to sneak in the shadows, they will always be at a disadvantage. Yep. Because they won't be able to play the same overt game to mask well, they, what they do in the shadows. Right. They won't be they won't be able to to tell the narrative, right? Right. Yeah. And do you have anything else on Wolverine? Uh not specifically. Other than that, I mean the story with him and Maverick is very pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and that leaves us with X Men number eighteen. Written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Mahmoud Azrar, colors by Sunny Go, letters by Clayton Cowles, and say it with me. Designed by Tom Muller. Uh, this is one where, I mean, the story in, 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 that's told in here was fine and all that. I, I, I mentioned, we talked about it before, I feel like something's happening here that I'm not fully grasping the import of. Well, I think that's by design. I think it is too. So, a little bit of context here. Uh, this is following the group of characters who went into the vault back in, was that issue six? Maybe? Oh, God, a while ago, yeah. A good long while ago. We have not heard anything else about them or the vault. Uh, that that team is, of course, Wolverine, Laura Kinney, the good one, the best one, <laughs> the only one, some might say. Darwin, who rapidly evolves to meet needs of his surroundings. Mm-hmm. And think, Sink. Thank think Mutant Sentinel, right? Yeah. And Sink, who copies other power sets so basically he's there for redundancy if you need a little extra firepower he copies wolverine you need a little extra survival he copies darwin sure uh they've gone into the vault which is a vault door in uh do we know where exactly that is i mean it looks like amazon rainforest yeah just south america the vault um, yeah, I I don't know if we know exactly where it's at. The first line of this book. From this point forward, you cannot depend on time to function in any manner resembling normal. Right. It waxes and wanes like temporal tides. This is, however, the past. Day one. And I think that's important because, okay, it tells us that at the moment when they're entering the vault. Mm-hmm. Who knows how the rest of this issue actually plays. Right. Certainly relative to real world time. Mm-hmm. But even in terms of its own its own internal time within the vault. The vault reminds me a lot of the world. The the Phantom X. Yes. Oh, very much so. Uh a uh, uh, reality bubble. Right. The one that aim like the la- with the lab in it and all that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um the denizens of the world are individuals who who 
one would argue basically have mutant powers or have superpowers at the very least but their evolution their population growth all of that is controlled by this sort of bundle of wires entity yeah like supreme intelligence style character yeah and essentially we see it declare okay you've brought us back information about earth humans they could be a threat but they're secondary mutants apparently are going to be a big threat and we cannot take them yet so you guys need to evolve further yep and we we see five of them fight this this invasion team and we learn through data pages and the last few pages of this issue something i think is going to be one is new but is also going to be huge going forward for the x books And that is the process by which the Five revives a dead mutant changes the balance of mutant power levels. Kind of trying to put this in the simplest, least like continuity wonk way. Yeah. Um, Mutants get their powers basically through something like puberty, right? And then they're set. They go from no powers to some powers. But because of the way the Five restore mutants to blank canvas bodies right those bodies already have the potential for mutant power in them uh whereas a human body at birth a mutant body at birth develops powers so there is a net gain in power for mutants who have been revived by the five so it's it's essentially kind of a, a think of it like um you know yeah, you start at, you know, when when a natural mutant you know, that was born from their parents, whatever, whatever, right, gets, gets their powers. Maybe they get their powers at, say, level one, right? Yeah. And over time, they can, just like a muscle or anything else, they can work that and, and raise that up slightly, right? Maybe they get to a two or whatever. Now they go into this body that's never been, act- as I think it said, mutant activated, right? Yeah. Um, But because the, the brain that's in there has all this knowledge, and knows how to use those powers more to their utmost, when they activate it, it's kind of activated at a higher level. So hey, Brian. Speak. Yeah. They're playing a roguelike. <laughs> they are. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's a roguelike. Every time they die, they come back with part of the powers they had the last time and build and, on it. And in Rogue's case, it's literal. Yeah. Roguelike. <laughs> The example we see of this in this issue is Sink, who we learn a couple of things. One, like, he could only copy mutant powers specifically before. Mm -hmm. And two, we learn that there is a a study of his power set at some point. I think this is one of those points where don't trust time becomes true. I imagine this data page is taken after they return and not before they go in. Yeah. Yeah. Where basically, now the way his powers work, as far as they know, is there is a part of him that is always reaching out, looking for a power source to connect to and copy, without his meaning to. That it's it's less work for him and also more potent. Yep. But what we see in this issue is he can also copy non-mutant powers now. Correct. Um, Which brings me to... How many times has Quentin Quire died and been revived? Oh, shit. Uh, at least like a dozen. We know that he is 
one of a couple of characters who is prophesied in the future to host the Phoenix Force. Yeah. Well, and he was an Omega level mutant to start with. Yeah. And and you know what? And what I could I could see an argument though, Alex, where if you're an Omega level mutant, maybe that change isn't as great, right? You know, if you go from if you go from level thirty two to level thirty three, that's not a biggest power increase is going from level yeah. one to level two, right? But the terrifying thing is this and you know, limited data. Right. Yeah, limited data. But this describes it in terms of like a 15% increase over power. So if it's not level to level sort of arithmetically, right. if it is compounding interest, mm-hmm. then if you're an Omega level mutant, you get a bigger jump. And the more times you die, you get bigger and bigger jumps. Um, yeah, uh, we still don't know really fuck all about the vault and what's going on long term. Nope. But we definitely get some big important information in this issue. Other than um wow, doesn't doesn't pay to be one of these characters that was supposed to defend the vault from him, does it? No. No, not at all. Like I was like which we read at the very, very the very last page of this is basically them saying that yes, force was you know, and force being the suspension of the rules of Kill No Human. Yeah. Right? Um, force authorization was authorized for this. Basically, there's no way these guys come back if we don't let them kill. Right. And so they kind of don't hesitate. No. No. Now, that being said, given how they talked about putting them back in the pot, right, to make them more powerful and that kind of thing, I'm really, really wondering if in this vault they can do something very similar to what the Five do and bring them back. I think that's exactly the point. I think this is mutants having to face a very specific sort of dark mirror yeah yep yep anyway all right i like it though i just i just don't like i said i think there's some very important stuff here and i don't fully think we understand what it all means yet i guarantee you we do (laughs) yeah okay is it still good here we go yeah brian buckle up for the like i don't know two or three of these that are yours Second Coming, Only Begotten Son, number two. This is a contender for the best Mark Russell single issue ever. Um, Jesus finally finds a crowd of followers at a conservative Christian amusement park. It goes poorly. Hmm. Abbott, 1973, number two. Uh, Elena Abbott seeks out help in dealing with the return of of the powers, the entity that she had been fighting in the first arc, uh, and continues to deal with her new bosses, just rampant sexism. Once in Future, number 16. Uh, the characters may be losing their grip on the story, and that is what they call a doomsday scenario. Something is Killing the Children, number 15. This issue brings the Archer's Peak saga to a close, as Erica decides maybe it's time for her to go her own way and ties up some loose ends. Batman Black and White, number 3. I already mentioned the cavalry storyline. I also want to just point at A Kingdom of Thorns, which was written and drawn by Bilkwee Evely and was lettered by Aditya Bidikar as a really, really fantastic sort of 
fantasy Batman Poison Ivy story. Uh, there's also a story in here called Legacy with a script and art by Nick Dragata and letters by Russ Wooten that is just a sort of stunning sci-fi mech Batman story that feels just sort of really, really unique because that's not a world you see Batman in much. Uh, but everything in that book is super solid. Generations Forged one-shot. This is kind of the second big chunk of the Generations story. Uh, I think what I said, and I'm going to take just a moment longer on this one because there's a little bit more here to talk about. It's 80 pages. Um, I think what I said last time about Shattered is very much true. It feels like it comes out of that tradition of sort of crisis on infinite Earths, 80s, big bombastic crossover. Uh, it does... It does end with a new idea for how continuity works in this world. I think there's some some interpretation that's still very open as to whether or not it's talking about Earth Zero or another Earth. I fall on the this is probably another Earth that this is going to ultimately be true of. Sensational Wonder Woman, chapters 7 and 8, Brian. Um... Veronica Kale asks Wonder Woman, do you want to build a blue snowman? <laughs> Crossover number four. The team decides they need to steal some sort of comic book uh, uh, paraphernalia in order to get into the dome. And they find a sword. I'm not going to tell you which one, though. Read the book. Haha, <laughs> number two. Uh... This is the anthology book of basically mundane clown horror. Uh, this issue is about a woman remembering her childhood sort of on the run with her mother, trying to find trying to find their way and pay their way to run off and join the circus. It is heartbreaking. Uh, Ice Cream Man number 23. This issue is about a late night show host who is maimed by one of the animal handlers animals and in sort of prose magazine article format tells the stories of all the people closest to him dealing with it uh it's a very cool issue but very very weird which is i mean an ice cream man issue that's weird who'd have thought oh who would have thought yeah nailbiter returns number 10 the fight between Warren and the figure in red, Penny, comes to its conclusion as Warren discovers a piece of his past that he's not aware of. Uh, this is the last issue for now, but they they have already said the series will be coming back sometime in the future to, to investigate that, that last page reveal. Okay. Stillwater number six uh, follows around for the last... 20 years the town's sort of muscle enforcer character as he has uh pursued his own machinations outside of the judge's oversight black panther number 23 uh this is the like year delayed return of black panther uh the first of its last three issues Najatika and his symbiote 
are plotting to invade Wakanda Prime on Earth as T'Challa and as many of Earth's heroes as he can muster to his cause prepare to repel them. Uh, Captain Marvel number 26. Black Widow wasn't the only book this week where Kelly Thompson ripped out our hearts. Uh, As it turns out, Carol learning about the future has significant repercussions for how she for the decisions she makes in her present and ove is not yet over oh champions number four brian this is on you um scott can't take the team to krakoa but he finds the next best thing in a mobile Krakoan base. Can it take the team to Krakoa, but he can take Krakoa to the team. There you go. Uh, and he lets the team know how they uh, how they kept getting exposed to Cradle. And um, Viv has a conversation with somebody who is somehow very well in- informed and relatable to what's going on, which makes me curious. Guardians of the Galaxy number 11. Uh, as the Guardians prepare for battle with the Greek gods, Rich Rider checks in with his therapist. The Immortal Hulk flatline number one. Uh, this is, I think, a fantastic issue, like a lot of these one-shots. I don't know exactly where in the, the timeline of Immortal Hulk this takes place. Mm-hmm. This is written and drawn and colored by Declan Shelby. Uh, with letters by Corey Pettit. This is, I think, definitely one of the strongest single issues of Immortal Hulk, and it deals with Bruce being confronted by... I'm going to say... I'm going to use a word that's going to sound like it's a specific character, and it's not. I mean this word in its its general sense, not the name of a Marvel supervillain. He is confronted by his old mentor about the choices he has made. Iron Man, number six... Uh, you know what? It's just a bad day to be Tony or to be, uh, uh, Patsy. And he really should just shut up and listen to Rhodey. Rhodey has his best interests in mind. Marvel's Voices Legacy number one. Uh, in a less busy week, we'd spend a little more time on this book. As with the other Marvel's Voices issues, this has been just a delight to see stories with these characters and these creative teams. A couple of my favorites here. Decompression, which was written by Mohale Moshiga with art by Chris Allen and colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. This story is about Shuri and Riri Williams and Kamala having their own like once every six months standing sleepover plan where they just sort of hang out and decompress and take a moment to chill, which is just fantastic. Um, the Blade story, Nighttime Bodega Run, which was written by Danny Lore with art by Valentin Delandro and colors by Dan Brown, uh, is probably the other big standout for me here, too. Uh, it's about a pair of kids confronted by family members who've been turned to vampires in a bodega, uh, and they're trying to fight them off when Blade shows up and helps and then starts training them on how to protect themselves. It's just a really great Blade story. Uh, But again, everything in this issue, really, really strong. Those are just my personal favorites. Spider-Woman, number nine, Brian. Um, Octavia shows us that she's still Octavia, and 
her and Ophelia have a moment that will guarantee that Octavia never, ever wins Mother of the Year. <laughs> Thor number 12. This issue has convinced me that Donny Cates' entire career at Marvel has really been one long scheme to form a new pet Avengers team. And I am here for it. U.S. Agent number three. Uh, as it turns out, maybe... There has been someone who has known what's going on and pulling U.S. agent strings this entire time. And he didn't see it because they were too close to him. And maybe there are actually two people who've been manipulating him. The Union number three. Uh, Union Jack has to deal with a replacement team member foisted upon him after the team refused to follow him in the form of Bulldog. And perhaps their, their government bureaucratic handler uh, brings more power to the table than one would expect. Last one, The Picture of Everything Else, number two. Uh, I love this book. I hate that we can't talk at greater length about it. Uh, definitely check it out. It is gorgeous. In this issue, we see the first reunion between Marcel and Alphonse, since Alphonse went to follow and intern with the Englishman. Uh, and we learn more about what the Englishman is up to and his designs for Paris, uh, as well as how Marcel has been coping with the trauma of their first encounter. All right, we're almost there. Hang in just a little longer, everyone, as we talk about this week's books. First up, we have the first few Infinite Frontier books from DC. Most excited. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, the Infinite Frontier one-shot. I am going to do my best uh, micro-machines guy as I, as I speed through this creative team. This is written by Brian Michael Bendis, James Tynan IV, Becky Clunan, Michael W. Conrad, Joel Jones, Tim Sheridan, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Joshua Williamson, Jeff Johns, and Jeffrey Thorne. Art is by David Marquez, Jorge Jimenez, Aletha Martinez, Mark Morales, Joel Jones, Stephen Byrne, Rafa Sandoval, Jordi Tarragona, Jamal Eigel, Alex Maleev, Todd Nock, Dexter Soy, Howard Porter, and John Romita Jr. and Klaus Johnson. Colors are by Tamara Bonvalon, Tomeo Mornay, Emilio Lopez, Jordi Belair, Stephen Byrne, Alejandro Sanchez, Hi-Fi, Alex Sinclair, and Brad Anderson. Letters are by... Troy Pateri. <sighs> no animals were harmed in the making of this comic. <laughs> <laughs> Terms and conditions apply. Uh, no, I'm I'm super excited about this to, to launch and see see what's how they're going to do this going yeah, forward. I I am so so excited for this book. Then we have Batman number one hundred six with its main feature about Batman. Written by James Tynan IV, with art by Jorge Jimenez, colors by Tomeo More, and letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, this starts off with a scarecrow story and is basically picking up where Batman 105 left off. Uh, plus whatever happens at Arkham in Infinite Frontier. We also have the first of our two-part Robin detective or demon story. Uh, this is written by Joshua Williamson, with art by Gleb Melnikov. I spent 45 minutes trying to find out who colored and lettered it. This information does not exist on the internet. But this and the second part that follows in Detective Comics will set up the Robin ongoing that debuts in April. We'll tell you next week who yeah. the creative team is about that. Crime Syndicate, number one of six. This is written by Andy Schmidt with pencils by Kieran McCown, inks by Dexter Vines, colors by Steve Olaf, and letters by Rob Lee. Especially in light of the Future State Suicide Squad book, I am very interested to see what happens here. Me too. But also as we pick up some of the character development with Owlman in 
death metal. Yeah. And speaking of Suicide Squad. Speak of the devil. Uh, number one, written by Robbie Thompson, with pencils by Eduardo Pansica, inks by Julio Ferreira, colors by Marcelo Maiolo, and letters by Wes Abbott. And finally, a book... You're not, you're not excited about this one, are you? No, no, of course not. The Swamp Thing, number one of ten. Written by Ram V, with art by Mike Perkins, colors by Mike Spicer, and letters by Aditya Bidikar. Like all of those, I'm, I'm, I'm getting yeah, all of them. I mean, cause... DC's only putting out like 18 books in March. I'm getting them all. Yeah. All right. My personal picks outside of the DC stuff. First up is America Chavez made in the USA. Number one. This is a mini series that's been delayed almost a year. Written by Kalinda Vasquez with art by Carlos Gomez. Colors by Jesus Abertov and letters by Travis Lanham. America Chavez is a great character. I'm excited for this creative team. Uh, Looking forward to seeing what happens here. We have a pair of King and Black one-shots as well. The first is Captain America, written by Danny Lore, with art by Nico Leon and Mirko Kolak, colors by Eric Arseniega, and letters by Joe Caramagna. The other is Wiccan and Hulkling. Brian, do you have that creative team? I do. It's being written by Teeny Howard, uh, art by Luciana Vecchio, uh, colors Espen Gruntiern, and uh, letters by Ariana Mayer. And then we have Brian's picks for the week. Number one is Noctera number one. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a new image book from Scott Snyder. Um, it is uh, written by Scott Snyder. Uh, art is by da- uh, Tony S. Daniels and Tomoy Mori. Uh, this is um, this is essentially a world where if you're in the dark, you get turned into a monster. So people have to stay near the artificial light sources. And we, our main character is somebody who has like a big 18-wheeler type thing to haul people and goods from one civilization spot to the next. Yeah, through the dark roads. Then we have Demon Days X-Men number one, which... I think we've decided this is billed as a one-shot, but it's going to be one of probably five one-shots. Yeah, probably so. Um, yeah, this is, the, the the writing and the art is by Peach Momoko, which is part of what excites me so much about this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, her art is, is so unique, and I, I think it's absolutely beautiful, and I can't wait to see her do a full interior book. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, I love this. I can't wait. I've actually seen some preview pages for it. It is gorgeous. Yeah. All right. That will do it for us for the... Nope. Brian I was going to has... say real quick. I, I, well, I just want to point out in uh, on previews this week, they've added... It is it is listed as book one of five. Okay, cool. There you go. Cool. All right. We have made it to the end of a Ooh. jam-packed episode. We would like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a proud member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. This week, I'm going to mention uh, one of our other comic book counterparts on the network, uh, Comics Quest, hosted by J.D. Martin. Uh, It takes looks at individual storylines in each episode, kind of like our uh, uh, comic publishing hiatus episodes did. But it does that for every episode. Um, And I'll be guesting on a couple of episodes of it soon. 
Very good. You can also visit us at panelologypodcast.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash panelology. Get merch at bit.ly slash panelology merch, capital P, capital M. Or send us your questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag, capital P, capital M. I did not check it for this week because it was already going to be a long episode. So if you sent one this week, we will get back to you. Yes. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar Moss. Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our Circle of Friendship. Where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives! Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives... 